This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined, almost as always, but not actually really, by Mark Alley. Well, yeah, always. Often. It's, it's fair. I'm joined always often. in parentheses or quotes or whatever, yeah. Yeah. I'm joined with all the best episodes. There you Mark go. Alley. All right. So, Mark, we are doing something a little bit different today on the podcast. What is happening? Well, our guest is James Langford. He's the Republican senator, a Republican senator from Oklahoma who has served since 2015. He previously served two terms in the House of Representatives. And before his time in politics, he worked in Baptist youth ministry for nearly 15 years. He's a graduate of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and preaches from time to time at his home church in Oklahoma City. So welcome, Senator. Glad I'm really glad him. to be able to be with you all. We are glad to have you here, too. And because there's an Oklahoma City reference and because listeners know that we love sports, we need to talk about your team this year. Well, it's teams when you come to Oklahoma, but the professional team is definitely the Oklahoma City Thunder. And how are you feeling about them? You know what? It's been a tough year for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're they're closer to 500 than normally are. They're typically well above 500, but uh, not quite there this time. Well, I actually went to go see them in Utah earlier this year where they played the Jazz, and they did win that game. Thankfully, but at this year, everyone should beat the Jazz every time. So that's just okay. Well, business as usual. Then um, I am actually a Warriors fan, and my sister is a Thunder fan. And I, yeah, there's just not a lot of things that we talk about there's when it comes to basketball. Of, there's not a lot of conversation there. Yeah, you know, we find commonalities, and apparently, that's gonna gonna end here. For those of you who don't know what happened, I'll just say Kevin Durant, and then Google it, and you can figure out the rest of the information. Right. But you guys love your basketball team, which I've always loved that. We about do. It's a, it's, it's a really fun team and a fun program. All right. Well, it's so great for you to join us today. You're actually in the studio, which is really cool. And before we get into asking you all these questions, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine, which you can do so at orderct.com slash quick to listen. Mark, we have a Billy Graham issue that people are going to get when they subscribe to our publication. Yeah, it's being printed as we speak, I believe, and mailed. And it is a stunning issue. I can say that because I had very little to do with it over the years. It's been, it's been in process for like uh, since 2002, more or less. Which is wonderful because that means that we were able to get some different voices and perspectives on Billy Graham from people who have since passed. Yeah. So we've had, we have uh, Chuck Colson's in the issue, John Stott's in the issue. And it's really interesting to get their perspective now that they've passed as well. So it's, in a sense, it's the most unusual uh, memorial issue out there, probably. But it's also chock full of just really interesting articles, many of which have been online already, but it's a beautiful edition. Yeah, I think it's really cool that we get to hear what some of Billy Graham's contemporaries thought of him towards the end of their lives, right? When they might be in a more reflective or processing space. So if you would like that publication... You can get it in its physical form at orderct.com slash quick to listen. The publication is also available on our website if you'd like to read through that digitally as well. So this episode of Quick to Listen for our listeners is a little different in the sense that we're not dealing with an issue. I do think we're still trying to do the podcast's uh, intent is to get beyond hashtags. That is to say, so here we, here we have a public figure who is presented by the media in all sorts of ways, but of course, they're not able to get beyond that image a lot of the time. So we're going to try to get beneath that because Senator Langford is a devout Christian and has a lot in common with us and our and you, our listeners. So we want to just explore that a little bit, what that looks like in the context of Washington, D.C. these days. So let's begin with uh, the beginning. How did you become a Christian? I actually accepted Christ when I was eight years old. Okay. Um, I um, was one of those um, kids that's up in the balcony because I caused all kinds of problems. So my my mom found it easier to be able to seat us in the balcony so she could pull us out without making a disturbance uh, when we were uh, disturbing. And, and embarrassing uh, her. And, and embarrassing <laughs> her. Yes, that's correct. Or, or anyone else. But I, I remember actually listening in church uh, one day, and I know that may sound radical for anyone who has an eight-year-old boy to find that they actually do listen at times, but I remember my pastor saying at one point that you can know God. And I remember just this overwhelming sense of, I, I don't. 
and it it was something that I that I took home, and I still was thinking about late that night. And so I'm I'm at home in my own bed, still thinking about the fact that there is a God, and I don't know Him, and I need to. And as simple as it sounds, at eight years old, I prayed and accepted Christ in my life by myself in my room, and just saying, God, I, I want to know You, and it began this journey for me with God. Just admitting my own sin, which I knew well uh, as an eight-year-old boy, I guarantee you. Uh, we had plenty of it loaded up uh, immediately, uh, but I, I knew it was aware of it and wanted to be able to start that journey. So I, I, my, my journey with God was not always consistent through that time period, but He has always been faithful through that time period, constantly calling and pulling. Yeah. Would you say that there was another seminal point in your life that occurred after that where you might say you rededicated your life to sure. Christ? Yeah, I, I would hope that would happen every day, quite frankly. Uh, I do go back to his mercies are new every morning, and I'm grateful for that because I've got things I've got to learn from yesterday. But when I was a uh, when I was a junior in high school is when this was, I remember just struggling with my own life and my own behavior and saying to God, God, you're either real or you're not, and I believe you are, and I've got to figure this out. Uh, so for me, it was a, a point of decision more than a rededication to say, I'm not really living a Christian life, uh, but I, I've said I am, and I'm still attending church. So I've got to figure this out. I'm either going to really walk with you, or I'm just going to drop this whole thing because I don't have time for this. Uh, and for me, after a journey, that was the decision to say, no, I'm really going to follow you, which uh, has been a joy for me to be able to walk with him in that. So it sounds like you had these different seminal moments where you were trying to personally reckon with God. At what point did you begin to feel a call towards ministry? Yeah, I was actually, that was when I was a senior. I'd mentioned before I was a junior. The turnaround time when I was a senior, I felt a call towards ministry and didn't have anyone in my family. That that'll, was that'll teach you to take God seriously. I know. That's, uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of like going to church. You, you never go to the pastor and complain about a program because they'll say, great, then you're, you're lead in that. Charge, that's exactly. right. You're in charge of it and, and fixing it. It was, it was kind of that moment for me of understanding if I'm going to walk with God, I'm going to really walk with Him. But by the time I was a senior, I really sensed a, a calling. And I, I had no point of reference for that with no one in my family that had been called to ministry. So in visiting with my pastor, as, as much as I could understand a call into ministry is really no different than what Jesus was saying to the disciples. It was, come follow me. Come follow me, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if anyone's read some of Bonhoeffer's works, uh, was this major moment for him to understand that, there, that follow me doesn't have a, a retirement plan or a destination. It is a person uh, that you're following. And to me, as much as I understood that as a senior in high school, I understood that my calling was to go follow him, and I sensed he was calling me into some kind of ministry. And so started exploring that when I went to college and uh, trying to be able to find ways to be able to follow him. I started at a Christian radio station spinning vinyl, uh, actually working as a DJ for a little while, and uh, did that. I then started serving in youth ministry at a local church and absolutely loved it and just had this incredible joy of uh, actually serving with students. Did you feel like, wow, I'm doing what God has called oh, yeah. me to do? Yeah, there was, there was no question in my mind at that point, or now in retrospect, looking back at it, that that's exactly where God had me at that season doing that task. Again, coming back to this context that God calls us to himself rather than to a task, sometimes we get consumed with the place he's calling us rather than the person that he's calling us to, and that is himself. And so when you follow him, he assigns us to the task along the path. But really, the goal is not the task. The goal is following him, and then he has something he wants to accomplish and he's going to use you for these different tasks. And so at different moments in your life, I really do believe he puts us in different places, but we still have the same calling the whole time. Uh, I'm a United States senator now, but my calling is the same now as what it was when I was in college doing youth ministry. My calling is to follow him. You worked in youth ministry for a number of years. 22 years. Can you give us kind of the good, bad, and ugly of what that ended up looking like? Uh, that's, that's every day good, bad, and ugly in youth ministry. <laughs> uh, be, because they're, they're, when you work with students, the unpredictable nature of working with teenagers at any point that the kid who was in a really good mood when you saw him yesterday may be in a really terrible mood today. I, uh, every, every I'm parent nodding because I was yes. in youth ministry, so <laughs> I get it. Every parent can testify to that as well. They never know who's walking through the door at any moment. So you're walking through life with people that are at that moment, they don't know what they're thinking either, and they're trying to figure it out. But they ask all the hard questions, and they ask honest questions. And when, they, when you talk about Scripture and you read a passage of Scripture, they're not going to just take it in and nod their head. They're going to push back on you often and go, I don't like that, or I, 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 I disagree, or how does that line up with something else? And those lead to these really great conversations. But you're having the opportunity to be able to talk to someone when they're actually thinking about faith, not from a childhood trust, but from a new intellectual depth to try to figure out, what do I really think about this? I know this is what I thought yesterday. Do I still think the same thing today? And if so, why? Uh, it made for a lot of joy and a lot of conversations. And to be able to be there when a lot of people make an eternal change. Uh, it's still one of the greatest joys that I have is when I bump into people 
that don't see me as senator. Uh, they see me as the person that was there when they accepted Christ, and they want to talk to me about their own personal faith and what's happening. Uh, I uh, met a um, young lady who's in her early 30s now uh, that accepted Christ to the camp that I was directing, and when I was preaching at camp there, uh, she had come to know Christ. She introduced me to her daughter, and she's standing there in church, and and for me, it was this, this moment of saying, okay, that this is a person that I had the opportunity to be able to lead to Christ. Now she is raising her own family, and she's standing there with her daughter in church and raising her, and you get the generational effect of some of those things. Yeah, you worked in camp ministry, which I'm someone that was deeply affected by camp ministry. Maybe you can share something in particular that happened during one of the weeks that you were doing camp ministry that you still hold on to and remember. Well, camp ministry for me is um, is one of those things also uh, I would have never expected to be in, but loved it. Uh, I served as, as, well, as 13 years as the director, 15 years total on staff at the uh, Falls Creek Youth Camp. It's the largest Christian camp in America. As far as we know, it's the largest in the world. We have about 5,000 students a week uh, that come there during summer camp. Uh, we have 51,000 students a summer that come there. Uh, it's a really remarkable place to be able to interact with people in ministry and watch a lot of people to be able to walk through it. But again, if you get 5,000 teenagers on grounds anywhere, uh, it's a pretty unpredictable place uh, with just the fun and the joy and the silliness. Still one of my favorite moments was in my director golf cart heading down the path at one point, and I stop in front of a, one of the dorms that's there. And there's a kid sitting on the porch of his dorm in a chair, wrapped completely in toilet paper, holding a scepter, which was actually a plunger, with people on either side of him like they're guards. They're also wrapped in toilet paper, holding, holding plungers like they're rifles, and standing there on either side of him, just, just standing there. And so I stopped my golf cart and looked at him and thought, okay, okay uh, here it, we it's, are. It, it's youth camp. And I just drove on. I thought, there's nothing... <laughs> Nothing illegal, immoral, anything else. It's students. There's got to be a great story behind that. I have no idea what it is still to this day, but I thought it's another day at youth camp of just somebody doing something goofy. There you go. So uh, I, re I remember listening to you talk to a group of uh, Christian leaders in the, some room in the Senate, and you mentioned that after doing all these years of youth ministry and working with youth, working in the, uh, in the Senate was a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've said to people a couple of times that um, working with juveniles so many years prepared me well for working in Congress. There you go. Okay, uh, that's a better line. The, yeah. uh, the, the yeah. conversations at time can be pretty juvenile as well. There. So talk about that transition. You'd mentioned in a previous conversation that, that, that your decision to run for office came as a big shock to a lot of people who knew you. Including us. Uh, my wife calls this life's greatest interruption. Uh, we didn't see this one coming. This was not something that... Cindy and I, when we got married, said, let's get married, let's have two kids, and then let's go run yeah, for so Congress Yeah, so maybe walk us through that, given that you were doing full-time camp yeah. ministry. And sure. when I think of camp ministry, I often think of, like, you know, that is your whole universe, it is. right? Is like you're immersed in camp. So when did those political kind of thoughts first come into your head? So, so as odd as it sounds, starting in the fourth grade, I was the nerdy kid that actually read the newspaper. Um, I, I grew up in a librarian's home. I was in speech and debate starting in the fourth grade. So I was always involved in issues and policies and, and, and all of those things, but never did any office, not even student council. I mean, I just wasn't involved in anything running for office, anything like that. So I, I had a background on issues, and I'd always just kept up with that. Uh, and quite frankly, when you work in youth ministry, you're around those issues all the time because they're real. Uh, family issues aren't some esoteric issue. They're real because you're interacting with those all the time. But in 2008, my wife and I separately really sensed that God was calling us something, and we couldn't understand it. Every time I sat down to read scripture every day, every time I went to church, it was as if the Spirit of God was saying the same thing, get ready. And just month after month, we were hearing the same thing over and over again, get ready, get ready. Now, that's pretty exciting for about a month. And then after a month, that's not exciting anymore, it's unsettling. And that went on for about six months. And in September of 2008, I remember I was speaking at a sea at the poll rally in uh, far eastern Oklahoma, and I was driving home late that night after the rally, and I remember just shutting off the radio and saying, God, I can't figure out what you're trying to say. I've taught students for 20 years how to follow you, and I can't figure out. You're trying to say something. I'm trying to listen, and I can't figure this out. As I just basically griped to God the whole way home uh, the rest of that trip, got home, was reading the news online and such that night. And as odd as it sounds, as I was reading through the different news things online that night, uh, one of the stories was about a member of Congress that was from the area where I live. Uh, she was considering running for governor uh, right after that. And I can't explain it other than as I read that story, it's as if the Spirit of God said, that's what I want you to do. And I remember leaning back in my chair and saying, well, that's insane. That, that's not even rational. That's not even possible. But I just couldn't shake it. And uh, I didn't tell Cindy, which is very unusual. We talk about everything together. 
But three days later, I'm back in my study trying to figure this out. She walks into the study and we start talking and she says to me, I think we're supposed to run for Congress. And I said, oh, what makes you say that? <laughs> and she tells me, now she's totally apolitical as well. And I said, this is what I sense God said to me three days ago. And so we determined we're going to pray about this for a month. And I honestly thought this was going to be an Abraham Isaac moment. Like, okay, be faithful to pray this through. You're going to really follow me. But at the top of Mount Moriah, I'm not going to have you kill your son. I'm going to give you the ram. But no, we got to the top of Mount Moriah and he said, no, I'm serious. Go ahead and kill your career. We're going to do something different. And that one month became seven months of us struggling and praying this through to the point that they got to March of 2009. And I knew I was disobeying God, that I wasn't following because I was just afraid to take that step because it seemed so odd. So I announced to Cindy one Sunday after church, I said, I'm going to be an old man one day telling my grandchildren about the time I didn't follow God if I don't do this. And I don't understand why we're supposed to do this. To which she lovingly smiled at me and said, I've been waiting on you because she already sensed that same thing. And that was a, a huge leap for us. But we knew this is what follow me look like now. So I, I think that there's this strand of odd that you see in terms of I was a summer camp ministry director and now I'm going in to try to work in Washington, D.C., at the same time, though, are there other parts of like your personality that you're like, I am actually I don't I worry about if my personality is cut out to work in that position or I have these values and these values do not always play well when they're played out in Congress. Would, would, were those types of tensions present as well? Well, I haven't found a place where the Bible and the Constitution disagree. So I've been OK with that uh, and as far as just living out my values mm -hmm. and who I am and keeping a biblical worldview. And the great thing about being an American, and I don't say it flippantly, is that we have Article 6 of the Constitution, which protects all elected officials from living out their faith. It says there's no religious test for any officer of the United States. So any elected official can not only have a faith of their choosing, they can actually live that faith out. So we, we actually are protected from living our faith just like any other citizen is protected. And the joy of being an American is that you don't just with the, with the Establishment Clause, that we don't establish a, a national religion, obviously, but also the free exercise of that means you can have a faith and live your faith, not just have one and keep it a secret. You can have it and live it. So that's been a great benefit to me, to be able to just be able to keep my faith and to be able to live that out as who I am. Uh, I've quite frankly believed that if I suddenly took that off when I got to Washington, D.C., I would become something that I'm not. And I think that's what people abhor uh, when you elect someone and they suddenly change and become something else when they get there. So for me, it was important to just stay who I am and to continue to be able to do the work. Uh, but the preparation for that is still the same. You've still got to do the work. I, I can't go and say, hey, I'm a Christian, so everybody needs to listen to me. I've got to be the most competent person in the room on those issues and bring a set of ideas and solutions in. It's not just enough to say I'm the nice guy that's the Christian. I've got to also be able to be competent in the work and to be able to get the work done. I think what I'm thinking of values, too, I read an article a couple of years ago about Paul Ryan when he was deciding to take the speaker position. And the big thing that this article suggested that he was wrestling with was time apart from his family and how much his life would be spent away from them. You know, when he wasn't in Washington actually trying to convince folks to pass particular legislation, he was going to be fundraising for other people. And so at least this thing said, like, this is a huge obstacle. And so I didn't know if there were any other values that you felt, you know, not necessarily like you can't read your Bible anymore, but values that you might have about raising your family or talking to other people or, you know, party lines that you might have to toe that felt a little bit more uncomfortable. No, I get that. And it is the hardest part of my job is flying away from my family on Mondays. There's there's absolutely no question about that. And that that is a very big sacrifice for all of us. Uh, my kids are now 21 and 17. Uh, I went into office seven years ago. And so for my youngest, who's 17, she was 10. Uh, and so I've missed all of those years uh, where I come home on weekends and on district work weeks and times that I can be home. But we Skype every night and get a chance to be able to see each other or we talk on the phone every day and get some of those moments. But everybody knows it's not the same. But it, as honest as I can say it, it's the same as long haul truck drivers. It's the same as airline pilots. It's the same as a lot of people that do outside sales or consulting that they're away, that their job takes them away. So I don't try to say, oh, woe is me, this is different. Uh, <laughs> if you're in the United States military, you know full well that the military may call you up and you're gone for nine months away from your family. You can still live those values, but it is different for us because we always did life together on everything. Uh, and it is now a unique new challenge to be able to do that. But for me, I, I would hope that whether it's working in party politics or whether it's anything else, to be able to maintain the same values.
You've been uh, doing the political thing for a decade now. What what has uh, surprised you uh, about entering that world or being in that world that you didn't expect? Yeah, I, I would say the very first thing that I think that shocked me going into the world is a lot of these emails that you get from all these special interest groups saying, send us $20 and we'll get your message out to XYZ in Washington, D.C. and we'll have a Washington, D.C. address. Most of those groups are just fundraising. They're not actually getting the message to members of Congress. Mm, uh, and I really expected to interact with a lot of those groups. I don't. Mm. They're, they're just sending emails out saying, send us 20 bucks. Uh, and sometimes they send out an email saying, if you will send us XYZ, then we'll make sure this legislation gets passed. And they'll send it out, and I'll still see some of those. And they'll send it out on the night before a vote is done, and I'll know what the count is on that vote, and I know it's going to pass. And they're sending us out like, unless you send us $20, this is never going to happen. But wow. I know it's already wow. happening, and they're already queued up with the next email saying, see, because you sent us $20, we got this done, when they didn't do anything. Uh, that was really stunning to me. Not, not every group is like that, but a lot of them are. And that was very sad. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be more cynical, Mark. I know, I know. <laughs> Like we mentioned at the top of the show, you went from being in the House of Representatives to being in the Senate. And from what I understand, there was a special election that took place that where that ended up happening. So I'm wondering, again, you're in this place where you're getting elected every two years, right? And it seems like you're up for re-election coming up for that for that House seat again. Talk us through where you were at your with your faith with taking this senator position. Yeah, it, same kind of jump for me uh, in, the, in the House when you're running for it the first time. Obviously, having no political background, I was running against some really good folks uh, that had long political backgrounds. They had, you know, people that were already donating, involved in volunteers and everything else. We were starting from scratch. So no one expected us to win the first time. And then we come up the second time and win again. And then what would have been the third time, Dr. Tom Coburn, who was senator from Oklahoma, retired early due to some health issues. And we had to make the decision, are we going to run for the Senate or are we going to run again for the House? You can't run for both in that setting because of the time period, you had to be able to choose. Did you feel like God was leading you in one place or I were you did. like, oh, you did? No, okay. I did. And, and that, that, was, that was the thing. In fact, that was interesting for us. You know, we had run twice for the house. And my girls were older at that point. And so we literally sat down as a family and talked about this and said, we need to pray this through because we've got to make a decision. And all four of us have got to be unanimous on this. So we're, I basically said to everybody, everybody's got veto power on this because we're all going to be affected by it. My girls at school are affected by the fact that their dad is a senator. Uh, our schedule is affected by that, our time together on it. Uh, they both run cross-country and track, and so I'm not going to be at every meet. Some meets I'm going to be able to be at, some meets I'm not. And so what what, what is that going to mean for us as a family? So we all prayed it through and came to came back to each other about a week and a half later and said, no, we, we all separately sense this is what God's called us to. So, okay, so w- what are we going to do on that? And uh, that started the process. But literally that is letting go. I mean, there's some great folks running for the Senate seat as well. Uh, when that happened. Um, But we knew if we're going to do this, then we've got to be able to step out and do it. You know, you were making this decision in one of those years where people start begin to be like, oh, who's going to be running for president next year? All the type of speculation comes out. And so you knew that the the initial years of you getting comfortable in this position were going to be playing out during a really important time where America was going to be getting a new president no matter what. Was this something that you, you prayed through or wrestled with at all? or That, that part of it, I really, uh, I, honestly, for me, I, I can't think about that part of it. I have to think about what God's called us to do. Uh, the consequence of that decision is on the other side. Now, you're going to count the cost. Again, to go to a biblical example, you don't build a tower without first counting the cost. We understand what was about to happen, but the decision first had to be, is this what God's calling us to do, yes or no? If yes, then brace yourself because here's what's coming. If no, then it's a totally different issue. God's not calling us to it, so we can do something different. But if yes, then let's go get after it. Some people would say, well, not some people, many people, maybe most people in America say politics is broken. I would love to meet the person that thinks it doesn't. Okay. And that some would go so far as to say that there is no point that it's so broken, it's uh, we shouldn't be involved in it. Uh, as Christians, we've got other things to do, more important things to do. Uh, rehearse for us what you did in another meeting we just had about the relationship of politics to faith as you see it in Scripture and how that affects your desire to stay in it, stay in the game. Yeah, so the first thing I would say, again, goes back to calling. If God calls you to be there, then he calls you to be there. And uh, whether that's in journalism or whether that's in television film production or whether that's in politics or any number of places that people would say, well, that's a really dark opportunity and career. There's, a, you know, all, if you're in Silicon Valley, there's not very many believers. It's a really dark place. Number one, I would say it would be shocking to me for God to send light to dark places. 
Uh, obviously, he does that all the time. <laughs> that shouldn't surprise someone. Exactly, to say, Gosh, right. I, I, it's so dark. I can't imagine God would send people there. You know, His love extends to every single person. So, of course, He's going to continue to send people there. What I try to look at this is from a biblical worldview, and through my own struggle of God calling me to this to try to figure out. Okay, I'm in ministry for two decades. I, I'm leaving ministry if I do that. And it was just this gentle reminder: if you're not leaving ministry, you're following me. I'm telling you where to go. You don't worry about the occupation on that. And then through my journey on Scripture, I look at the Old Testament. There are about what I consider 36 and a half books in the Old Testament are either written to, by, or about a political leader. It was often the prophet going to the king, or it was King David writing the Psalms, or it was Solomon writing the Proverbs, or whatever it may be. The books of the Old Testament are written to, by, or about political leaders. A third of the New Testament was written to a political leader. That's the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Obviously, of the 27 books in the New Testament, that's only two of them, but it takes up a third of the pages of the New Testament were written to a political leader. And when you see Saul in his calling, when he struck blind on the road to Damascus, as he gets into Damascus blind, uh, the, God comes to the prophet and says, go lay your hands on Saul. And the prophet says back to him, whoa, do you know who this guy is? And God responds, yes, I know who he is. He's my chosen instrument to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Gentile kings. And the rest of the book of Acts is Paul going to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and then ending up before political leaders. It happens over and over again. And in fact, there's a, there's a stunning passage that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, be aliens and strangers in this world, and we're all familiar with that passage, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So it's this great calling. It's the seminal verse in, in, in 1 Peter where he says, this is the main reason I'm writing you, but we lose track of the very next verse after he says, live such good lives that people would see it and would glorify God. The very next verse is honor authority. And then he challenges them. Here's a specific way you can live such a good life that you'll stand out in culture. This culture that we live in today chooses to dishonor authority in every direction that we go. And when we as the church do that as well, we blend into culture. Peter was saying, if you want to make a difference in your culture, you're going to have to stand out in a way that will be revolutionary. And his push to them was, go honor authority in a Roman culture where no one's honoring authority, where everyone saw how corrupt they were. If you honor instead of dishonor, it will provide an opportunity for you for the gospel. And I think we've lost that. If you want to do a more recent example, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness doesn't overcome darkness, only light can do that. Hate doesn't overcome hate, only love can do that. And we have lost this sense that we are trying to overcome hate with more hatred, thinking that's going to knock it down. And we've lost this basic principle of the counterculturalness of Christianity to say when hate comes at you, when you respond with love, it gives you the opportunity to actually revolutionize that. Love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. That uh, example from Peter is really powerful. I hadn't put the context of that, but of course he was asking them to honor, like like you mentioned, a corrupt, pagan, in many ways, anti-Christian oh, authority. So. And yet he would still call them to honor. I mean, that was in a time period when they were murdering Christians publicly. Uh, so that it, it was a very difficult situation so for we're them. We're in a slightly better situation than that. We are. With, with a different way that we interact with our government, right. too. That's, that's mean, correct. We we have the ability to elect them and participate in a way that very few of the people that Peter was calling had direct impact. But by st- I guess uh, I think the point uh, Senator, the senator is making is that uh, by staying involved, we're honoring authority by just staying involved because to, to us, the system is the authority in some sense. The Constitution is the authority. There's nothing unbiblical about challenging authority. It's the way that we do it. It's can we honor authority at the same time? Honoring authority doesn't mean agreeing with authority. Uh, or, there's a, or, there's a or merely level. submitting all the correct, time. Correct, yeah. correct. So when I go back to teenagers working with teenagers for all the years, they may tell me the terrible things that their dad said yesterday. But uh, you begin with the biblical principle of honoring your father and mother. Now, what are we going to do under that and around that and how to be able to help make a transformation? I, I, I pray for the transformation of our government. Uh, we need a transformation in government, but that doesn't mean I can also not honor people in the process. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. 
Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. Well, let's talk about Donald Trump then, because I feel like that is something that our, our listeners are really curious about, about how Christians are navigating this presidency. So during the 2016 presidential primary, you didn't support a candidate. And then during the general election, you did decide to back Donald Trump. You know, this was a time during his candidacy that many people kind of characterize as being racist or dishonest at different times. And I'm wondering, how did you make this decision that you were going to back him specifically as a Christian? Yeah, it, it, it's a difficult decision. I want to tell you, I, I made the comment multiple times to people that what I really look for in a presidential candidate is someone who's a great role model. And I didn't get that this time. Uh, and I was very frustrated. I didn't, I didn't have a good option that I would consider that person I think is a great role model for my daughters and for my family and for the next generation based on choices and values and all those things with either party. And so my issue is, okay, where, where are we going to go? Uh, I can't make decisions just basically based on party because, again, I haven't been in politics that long. This is not my lifelong addiction is to be in politics on it. I have to be focused on, on generationally where we're going to try to go. And it, it's a challenge. And I've had conversations with the president and some of his staff. And I've had conversations with other people to say where I disagree with them, I'm going to say it. And I'll say it sometimes privately. And uh, when the public statement is made, to be able to respond back to it. Now, I don't respond to all of his tweets or I'd get nothing else out. Uh, but there are some times uh, that he'll make a statement that's just a jarring, dishonoring statement that I'll feel like, you know what, the right thing to do is to be able to push back on that and to say that's not who we are. One of the goals that I have is to bring dialogue down to a level that we can actually have dialogue rather than just shouting at each other. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, because one thing that we've seen in the past couple of years is that it, at least it seems to me, we have an unprecedented number of GOP congressional leaders who are deciding that they're not going to be running for re-election in this election that we have. Well, the primaries are happening right now, but in the November elections. And given that, you know, you're seeing your colleagues kind of decide that Washington is just not something I can do anymore. Have there been moments in the past couple of years, you know, specifically after you took this position in the Senate, where you started to question what your calling was? I haven't for me. We've seen more of that transformation in the House than we have in the Senate. Uh, what happened in the um, Senate was really a pretty big shift that happened in 2014, actually. Uh, there were 13 new senators. And with a body of only 100 people in one election, uh, when 13% of them uh, actually flip over, that's a pretty big shift uh, in the Senate that occurs. In the House in 2010, we watched that, where there was an enormous number of Democrats uh, that retired that year or that lost an election that year in 2010. So some of that cyclical uh, that happens, again, that goes back to the American people and how they choose things. Uh, I get the great opportunity of working with people I didn't pick. Someone else picked. Uh, that's the person that has the office next to me, but I don't, I don't pick them. So I have the responsibility to be able to do what I'm going to do. So there's not times where you felt that the discourse or the just kind of the pressure um, gets you in a place where you're just like, God, why me? Is this really what's going on? No, I, I don't think it's the why me. I do have lots of moments where I say, God, is there are there places I can spend my time better for the kingdom than this? Because the work is so incredibly slow and so incredibly difficult there. Obvious things that you would think could get done in a week take years uh, to do to try to move 218 people on one side of the building, 60 people on the other side, and then the person down the street as well. So there's some things that I could say to people, this is a policy issue I've worked on. They would say, great, it's not going to pass next week. I was like, no, I've been working on this for four years, and I can't get the coalition around it to be able to get the floor time to be able to get it done. So there's some obvious things that take a very long time that are not partisan issues, that are plain sense issues, that you just push and push and push and push. There is a great frustration with that. Some of the rule structure and what's happening in the Senate right now especially of how few things are being voted on in the Senate is very different than how things were 20 years ago, uh, when a lot of things were being voted on. And even if you lost the vote, you got a vote on it. That's not true anymore. Nominations process being held up now, there are very few pieces of legislation you get. And even when you get on legislation, there's this constant holdup to drag to not really be able to discuss it. There are some things that took a very long time. The Civil Rights Act uh, was on the floor for months uh, when it was on the floor in the 1960s. But in the end, it got amended, 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 and then passed and went through the process. That doesn't happen anymore to actually get pieces of legislation that are on the floor and to be able to go through that long amendment process and then try to work through. 
it's something that we do need to fix uh, in our system just for the sake of the catharsis of the nation. I, I think we as a nation sometimes don't like the direction of the nation, but we like even less drifting. And I think there's a big perception of the nation. We're just drifting. Yeah, it seems like there can be fatigue that sets in and then you have to fighting about back against cynicism too, knowing specific colleagues who you may feel are holding up parts of the process for reasons that you may not necessarily feel are valid. And then, you know, just going back to your summer camp days of being able to work in ministry and maybe see the fruits of the labor a little bit more quickly. Sure, yeah. And that is the nice part about working in camp is that you do get a chance to see in a that. week. And you, and, and, and you <laughs> see that process uh, going over and over and over again. Uh, and working with the staff and working directly with it. But uh, again, this is where God has us. And so we're going to work through this and be able to do it with all of our might. Speaking of Trump, there's a deep division about many things that are going on in Washington among um, your your faith family evangelicals. Um, You've come out uh, strongly in support of immigration reform that would be welcoming or trying to figure out a way to get dreamers uh, a better life here. Uh, But many evangelicals are very resistant about that. Uh, many uh, Christianity Today has, has editorialized for it. How do you how do you understand this moment, and how would how would you counsel us to either to talk with one another and to help make some movement on, for example, an issue like immigration among our brothers and sisters? So I, I do start with the principle that every person is created in the image of God and have value and worth, and they'd be treated with dignity. But in an issue like immigration, not every person's a citizen of every country. I've visited Malawi before, but I'm not a citizen of Malawi. I'm a citizen of the United States. Uh, I've, I've visited England before. I, I'm not a citizen there. Uh, I can't just remain. So there are, there are certain rights and privileges you have in each country where you're a citizen. In other countries, you're a guest and try to be able to work through that process. The dreamers are a very difficult case, though, uh, in our law. In our law, we don't hold children accountable for the actions of their parents. Uh, if you get pulled over for speeding, which I'm sure you would not, if you get pulled over for speeding, uh, then if there's a four-year-old in the back seat, they don't hand the ticket to the four-year-old. They hand it to you. You're the adult. Uh, you're the person who was responsible for that. We've tried to figure out as a nation what to be able to do specifically with the case of these children that came as children, two or three years old. They've grown up in the country. Many of them grew up in our schools, said the Pledge of Allegiance, no English. I mean, they, they're very engaged. And then suddenly when they're 17 or 18 years old, they're getting ready for college and their parents say to them, oh, there's something I need to tell you. We're not in the country legally. So now things are changing for them. Where before their high school and their middle school didn't ask that question, now everywhere they go, they're going to get asked that question. And when they get a job application, they're going to get asked that question. They don't have a birth certificate. They don't have those things. So I've been an advocate to be able to say, for that group of individuals, we need to be able to say, let's hold them harmless in this, that they've grown up in our culture. But we also don't want to create an environment uh, where we tell an adult, if you come to our country and bring a child, it's a free pass, uh, because that's a very dangerous journey for those kids. Uh, And there are a lot of people around the world that would love to be in the United States of America. As much as we fight with each other, most of the world fights to get to us because of the freedoms that we have and because of the opportunities that we have still in the country uh, that continue to grow. So we've got to be able to strike that balance between how do we handle border security, how do we handle legal processes, but also how do we treat with dignity these individuals that came as children. I do remind folks that the United States has the most open immigration system in the world. 13% 13% of the people that come in, uh, into the country through our immigration system came as refugees. We take in over a million people a year legally into our country. We have half a million people a day that cross our southern border legally. Half a million each day cross the southern border legally. They actually go through the right process. So it's not as if we're closed as a country. There are complicating factors for coming here long-term and work, but we're a very open country, and I'd love for us to be able to remain that way. I'm curious, Senator, can you recount a time maybe in the past year where you have been able to change someone's mind on this immigration issue? I've had lots of conversations with people on it. I have people that start immediately with, you know what, if people are in the country illegally, we just need to deport them all. And then I'll initiate conversations and say, well, let's talk about that. And then start talking about what about this kid that came at two years old, grown up in a country and go through the process on it. Well, well, maybe. Or other people say, no, they're all legal. They all need to be able to go. But it's the planting the seeds of the opportunity to say, let's think about this. Uh, and let's be reasonable in how we try to figure this out. And again, we can we can respect each other in the dialogue, and that's very helpful to us because they're going to bring in a perspective that I probably haven't thought about, and I hopefully will bring something they hadn't thought about. If people are working to try to get to resolution and try to be able to answer the question, it's very different than saying, I'm closed. I don't want to discuss it. I don't want to think about it. Go away. That's very different. So I, I, I try to find groups of people that may disagree on an issue that can all bring their ideas, but all want to actually get to a solution rather than want to actually not do anything. That sounds like that would be your prerequisite for dialogue. 
is that you can't just have talking points that you would like to make. We have to be on the same page that there is a problem and that we would like to do something about that problem. Right. right. The, the, the goal for me is let's solve the problem. Let's not just acknowledge it. And and quite frankly, in Congress, and I think it's a lot of the frustration with the American people, Mark, you were talking about before, where everyone says the broken process is broken. It's because we seem to talk about an issue and not solve it. So immigration is another great example of that. We had a deadline to get it solved by March the 5th. By the way, that date's come and gone. It's not solved. And as we got closer to the date, some court rulings came in and took the pressure off. And so many members of Congress went, okay, we don't have to talk about it anymore and just moved on to other issues. And I've had a very difficult time continuing to gather members to say, we're supposed to be getting to resolution on this. Now it's like, ah, that was last week. We're moving on to other things. We've got to be able to finish it out. And that's the hard part is when there's a deadline, you work to actually get it finished. When there's not a deadline, it's tomorrow we'll work on that. Tomorrow we'll work on that. So we've got to be able to keep people in the room and stay there and say, we stay, we work on this till we get it solved. Switching gears a little bit, there was a religion news service piece that was written about you last year. And one of the really cool things that I thought about that piece was that senators outside your own party were quoted in there just talking about their personal relationship with you. And there was mention about this um, bipartisan Bible study that you're a part of in Congress. Can you, is this something that you started? Uh, so there's a, a Tuesday morning time. It's a Bible study that I did start. Um, this is just a gathering. It's a bipartisan gathering just to talk about Scripture. And uh, we've spent the last year and a half going through the Sermon on the Mount, just taking a couple of verses at a time. And, and just, a really easy passage you started oh, with. Gosh, yeah, I know. Uh, it, it's <laughs> it, what, What's so funny to me is that I have so many people say, you know, I don't believe in the teachings of Jesus, just the Sermon on the Mount. I was like, you ought to read it. <laughs> exactly, before <laughs> you say that. that'll really push you when you actually go through that passage. Um, but So we, we spent a lot of time on that. That's been great. We'll continue to be able to just spend time together just talking about Scripture, how it applies to our own personal lives. You, you know what? It, it Going to Congress is really no different than going to college, as strange as that sounds. Uh, I have a lot of people that go to college and they walk away from their faith, or some other people in college seem to walk closer in their faith. What's the, what's the difference? Their decision and what they're going to do. Members of Congress are away from home. Uh, many of them have a faith background or sometimes shallow and sometimes deep. And when they come there, they're kind of determining where am I going to go to really be able to have a safe place to do it? And I just thought a conversation around Scripture and our own personal faith journeys uh, would be a safe place to be able to do that. And so just talked to some other members and said, I'm going to start doing that. Are you open to it? And kept asking around until we found people that were interested in doing that. And then we opened it up to anyone who wants to come. There's also a Wednesday morning time that's called the, the Senate Prayer Breakfast. That's been going on since the 1950s. Eisenhower administration is actually where that started. Uh, with a group of senators, just bipartisan, getting together to be able to pray for each other. It's only senators, no outside any, anybody that comes in. Uh, and we each tell our story of what's going on in our life spiritually. Uh, we'll sing a song together, which if you want to really be vulnerable, get in a group of 20 people and sing together. Uh, but one of us will pick a hymn and uh, be able to sing together. We'll pray for each other and our families and what's going on. But it's no politics at all. It's just how we're doing in our families and our personal walk, and especially in our spiritual walk, to be able to help push each other. How would you say that this Bible study and the the Wednesday morning thing that you're a part of, yeah, what what has been the impact of of you know convening with Christians across party lines? Yeah, no, it it shouldn't be just across party lines. It should be just convening with Christians, period, and uh, getting the opportunity to just be able to be together to pray for each other, to be able to talk. And though it is across party lines, uh, that's the moment that we try to be able to drop that and not talk about party issues or political issues. Uh, it, it is jarring to some people to say that I can sit next to a person of another party, we can pray together, we can talk together have a common sense of faith, but we disagree on an issue. Okay, we're going to disagree on some issues. That's all right. Uh, there sometimes it's a regional thing. Being in Oklahoma, I think very different than sometimes they do from the New England area about certain issues because we have different backgrounds on things. That's not necessarily a political issue. Often that's a family issue, a perspective issue, or a regional issue. So let, let's just continue to have respectful dialogue in that process. But I would think it would help you uh, disagree with them more civilly now that you have this relationship in the Bible study. Is that proven to be true? There is actually a running joke in our prayer breakfast time that it's so much harder to stab someone in the back after you've just prayed together. Not impossible, but so much harder to do that. <laughs> okay, yeah. there you go. So one thing that you introduced in the past couple of years is this idea of trying to help Americans get Americans better understand where other Americans are on race. And this is something that you've worked with Senator Tim Scott out of South Carolina with. You suggested that people talk more about race with people who are not the same race as them over meals. I really am just so curious, you know, you are a white evangelical from the Bible Belt, and we've had a lot of stuff about race going on in recent years. Can you kind of walk us through 
how your own views on race relations have changed? My views on race continue to develop like everyone else does on this. Um, but I, to, to me, this whole idea started what I call Sunday Solutions after the police shooting in Dallas when we're watching it back and forth for, for several months there or for several years uh, leading up to that point where there would be some unarmed black man that had been shot by police officers and there'd be a riot and protest and response and then there would be some police officer shot and then it would just seem to go back and forth for a while and the media is trying to focus on all of it. Uh, I came into my staff at one point and said, we need to, we need to address this, but there's not a piece of legislation that's going to solve this. And so I just spent time being able to pray this through and to be able to struggle with it. And I started asking just a very simple question of people in Oklahoma. I would ask them, has your family ever invited a family of another race to your home for dinner? Has that ever happened? And I was shocked by the number of people that responded back to me, I have friends of another race. And I would smile and say, that's not what I asked. (laughs) I asked, has your family ever had a family of another race in your home for dinner? And I found almost no one of any race that I talked to could answer yes to that question. And what I was discovering was there is a threshold in our our racial relationships, and it's typically the threshold of our homes, uh, that we may have friends at work that are of a different race or friends at school of a different race, but they really don't come into our family. And our kids don't sit down at the dinner table with kids of another race and have just normal conversation. And so my push has been what I call Sunday's solution, is to say Sunday's typically a slower day for most Americans. Uh, Why don't you do this? Why don't you spend one of those Sundays, either lunch or dinner, and just invite a family of another race to your home for dinner? And then the funny conversation started coming back to me, where I had people say, what would we talk about? And I would say, I don't know, the weather, (laughs) college football, how's your work doing, how are your kids? I mean, just there's no preset number of questions. I'm not trying to create a program. I'm just saying invite another family for lunch. And then it was really interesting. I was watching people struggle. I don't know who I have a relationship with enough that I could ask, that that wouldn't seem like an odd question to them to say, what do you want? Why why is this? So I, I was watching the conflict within people when I would just ask a simple set of questions, starting with, has your family ever invited a family of another race to your home for dinner for them to figure out? I don't think I could do that because I think my racial relationships are so shallow that wouldn't work in, in my relationships. I couldn't actually do that. So I, I tell people, don't try to program it. Don't one church, don't get an African-American church and a white church together, an Asian church and say, we're all going to meet in the fellowship hall and we're all going to have this big interracial meal and think it's done because that's not it. You've been assigned then to sit to next to someone. The struggle of it is for individuals personally to try to figure out have I ever done that? And could I do that? Do I have, are all of my racial relationships so shallow that I, I couldn't even invite someone over for dinner and it feel like just a normal thing for me to be able to do? And so for me, this simple push, again, what I call Sunday solutions, could be done on any day of the week, by the way, it doesn't have to be a Sunday. It's just to be able to sit down at a meal. And the, the tagline that I come back to is we're never going to get all the issues on race on the table till we get all of our feet under the same table and be able to just sit down and have a meal and that be normal. And for some reason in America, that's still not normal. Now, on the flip side of that, when I watch the Olympics and all of the athletes come marching in, every country that marches in, all their athletes look the same until you get to the United States. And the athletes are this cornucopia of colors uh, and sizes and shapes coming in. We're better at race than most of the world is. Most of the world does not think you can be interracial and it will work. They separate still by religion and by race or by tribe. It's still very separate even to this day. But if the United States can figure this out and can finish what we started with the Declaration of Independence that we believe that all men are created equal, if we can finish that out, it is a revolution for the world. Would you, would you say that there was a personal relationship when it came to race that had that type of effect on your own thinking and life? For me, it was my roommate in college, uh, uh, okay. African-American that I met actually at my church, uh, that uh, we didn't know each other before college. We met in my freshman year in college. We both needed roommates in our sophomore year. And so we roomed together. Um, and we're still friends to this day. But he, he became the person for me, though I, I grew up in an interracial area, and that, that wasn't as much of an issue. But he was the first person that was really close to me as a friend that we could sit around and ask the dumb questions to. He, he had all these great sayings and different things, but he, he was the guy that I could sit down with and say, okay, help me understand this. There's a Miss Black America. If there was a Miss White America, that'd be a problem. And he would laugh and not criticize me. He would laugh and go, okay, let me tell you why. And we, we could have an honest dialogue. And I, I find very few people that have a friend of another race that can say, okay, I've, I've never been safe enough with anybody to be able to ask this question, but I've always wondered. 
because that's what friends would do. You never get to that point if you never even start. If you're just friendly with people but not friends with people, it never really gets difference. And in the African-American community, it's really funny. That, that At least in Oklahoma, they have a saying, said white people talk about their black friend, black people talk about their white friends. He said there, there's a big difference in that. And there, there are some people that have a token friend of another race, but they're not developing friendships just based on it doesn't matter what your race is. And there, there's a different depth in that. Thank you so much, Senator. Who is now our token senator friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that great conversation, Senator. Anyone who has feedback for the podcast, we invite you to share it on Twitter. Make We're, sure you're nice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, right? And you'll respond nicely in turn. Yeah. You can reach us at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy at the moment. Mark, I hope you're ready. Well, I am ready, and it will be Bring Me Joy in about six hours. We're celebrating my uh, middle daughter's birthday tonight. So we'll be with her and her husband and her two children, grandchildren. I can assure you that will bring me joy in a few hours. Awesome. People can reach me by subscribing to The Galley Report at uh, ChristianityToday.com. The Galley Report, spelled with... Uh, with a G-A-L-L-I. It's a weekly newsletter I publish with links and commentary. Wonderful. Senator, you want to go? Well, I can talk about birthdays as well and joy. I turned 50 last weekend, oh uh, so gosh. that's a big decade birthday for me. And Did you get teased? I, You know what? I really didn't get teased that much. Oh. Uh, it was, you know, when you're in the Senate and you're 50, you're the young guy. In, That's in, true. In, in, in that That's body. True. So it's like, gosh, you're, you're, you're just barely catching you up. You can't really complain. Right? That's you're correct. Like, like John uh, McCain over there. Yeah. I was going to say there's lots of guys that are in their 80s and ladies that are in their 80s that are in the Senate. So again, I'm still the, the young whippersnapper over in the corner. But my, my, my bride, Cindy, made for me a book with 50 pages with just messages about how she loves me and put a picture. We've been married 26 years and put a picture of different times in our marriage. Wow together on each page, and it was just a book for me to be able to keep, and it was so much fun. Uh, she had me read 10 pages a day for five days, leading up to 50 messages, uh, leading up to my birthday, and it was it was just really a, a great sense of joy. It's a good look back, right? Yeah, it was You're good. like, oh my gosh. It was good. Look what we made it through. Yeah, and we got married, uh, you know, we were 24 years old, but oh my gosh, I looked at us and we still look like children. So. <laughs> <laughs> Are you on Twitter? I am just at Senator Lankford. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Senator Lankford. Awesome. My precious moment this week, I, some people know on the podcast that I'm doing this challenge to read books only by or about Native Americans this year. And I just finished a book last night called Monkey Beach by a First Nations woman who lives in Canada. Her name is Eden Robinson. And the group of people that she wrote about live in these islands off the coast of British Columbia. I just thought the book was very outstanding. It was awesome to be exposed to this part of the world that I have. I've, I've been to Vancouver before in British Columbia, but I have never been to some of these islands off the coast. And the characters that she drew were like very flawed people and very moving and emotional people. And I may have teared up when I was listening to, you know, emotional music with reading the book and at like 1230 last night. So I highly recommend that book. It is called Monkey Beach if people want to read it. I am on Twitter. At M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud or Google Play or TuneIn or wherever you want to get your podcasts. We are there. Thank you to everyone who's left reviews of the show on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all of you. And this podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?